This is Archive Atlanta, episode 105, Historic Preservation 101. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week's episode has been a long time coming. As an outsider to the field of preservation, I knew I was passionate about saving historic places, but I didn't really know the details, like legislation or process or even the repercussions. It's been almost a year since I began volunteering with Historic Atlanta, and the learning curve has been really steep, but also really enriching. So I knew that the best way to get this information to my listeners was to do an interview with someone in the field. So without further ado, enjoy my interview with Charles and learn about how we can protect Atlanta's most important spaces. I am Charles Lawrence. I am an architectural conservator with Lord X Sargent, and I am a founding board member of Historic Atlanta. Okay, so today we're going to cover Historic Preservation 101 and hopefully answer the questions um, that I feel like I represent the lay people of Atlanta. I don't know all of the technical stuff and the federal legislation, and a lot of people ask questions oh my gosh, how is this house being taken down? Or what can we do? I get a lot of what can we do. So let's start with real basics, like old versus historic. Is there a a difference? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Don't call it historical. That's what I'll start off with. (laughs) Um, I'll just jump on that one. I know you didn't ask, but it's one of the big pet peeves of the sort of practicing professional in this field. There is a place for historical, you can be a historical society because you are of and pertain to history, um, but it is historic preservation because it is, is the act of preserving a historic building, right? And we say uh, historic in that terms because we're really specifically trying to pinpoint a concept that it is not just old, but it has been recognized as significant to some degree for its age. And, and that's a bit of a challenge for a lot of folks because in, in preservation, the, the sort of the rule of thumb, but also something that is written into a lot of the legislation around preservation uh, is that a building has to be 50 years of age or older. So a, a great example is that the, the downtown library, um, it, it was designed in 1980 by yes. Marcel Breuer. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, right? And so it is, it is a historic building, even though it, it, is, it is younger than I am. Um, but it is historic by sort of nature of who designed it, what it sort of ultimately represents, and its sort of significance for its, its age and its architecture. So you're not hard on the 50-year mark? No, not at all. It's just one of those terms that is both uh, a, a layperson's term and then there's also this term that we bandy about within the profession as a sort of a jargon term. And the reality, though, is that everything that we talk about when we talk about historic preservation, historic Atlanta, the historic built environment, what we're really saying is the places that are significant and valued by a community, let's say for you know multiple generations. So then this is the next question I have for you is who decides what's historic? That is a really good question because it, it actually is, is unanswerable. Um, the, the truth of the matter is that there's a lot of people who decide what is historic. Um, there are legal definitions, right, through the National Register of Historic Places or a local historic preservation ordinance. They might declare that something is historic um, and then it is treated under that class 
differently than than buildings that are that are not designated as such. But then, you know, individual communities and just people will decide for themselves what is valuable and what is historic and what is significant for themselves. And so it's not necessarily competing interests, but it's just that those two perspectives are both put into when we evaluate. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's complicated. So let's segue then, is, and maybe I got, hopefully I got the year right, but is it 1966 Historic Preservation Act? The 1966 Historic Preservation okay. Act. So sure. what, do you know what made this come about? Yeah, the big events that were happening during that time wave of, of uh, national highways started to be built in like the 1950s. And that progressed through the 60s and 70s, saw a lot of lane expansion and all of that. So, you know, the context of that was these highways were coming into cities and a lot of cities were making decisions about whether or not the highway needs to go around or, you know, become like a 285 loop or go right through the center like the connector. Um, and a lot of cities, unfortunately, you know, chose to get the highway to go straight through the center of um, but then the other side of it, and also really related to, to these important social justice issues, is the urban blight and yeah. slum clearance, uh, quote unquote, of course, you know, that, that was going on sometimes in advance of the highway construction. And then later as ways to, according to city officials, to clear out unsafe conditions. And according to a lot of historians and folks who have studied this, it was an intentional way to, to create more segregation in the physical landscape. Welcome to Atlanta. That's really interesting. So are you saying that things were getting torn down or demolished and people were just like, whoa, whoa, we have to do something? Yeah, interestingly, a lot of the earliest preservation movements were allied with the anti-urban renewal pro programs, anti-highway uh, expansion programs. There's a lot of times the, this idea that preservation is linked in a lot of ways with, with gentrification. The facts are really, they don't support that. There's the current trend is that there are the, the gentry class is moving back into the city core, right? And, and they happen to like historic buildings. And and so there's a there's a couple of studies. There's some really good studies by um, Professor Freeman from Columbia that that really sort of parses out what's happening there and says actually, you know, in cases where where preservation has occurred in those ways, it's done better to prevent or slow down or you know really? or sort of redirect those forces. The Historic Preservation Act was a federal thing, right? My question was, if it's federal, how did it affect local stuff? Well, so so all this stuff was happening and, and all the, the mayors of, of all the cities got together and they had this big mayoral conference. And actually one of the big subject matters was what is going on with the destruction of the historic resources in our cities? And um, from that conference, this big multi-page report with recommendations came out. That report went straight through Congress. and It was probably the fastest legislation that's ever sort of been provided. But but it was really just clear. And the, and the folks who were supporting it were united across a lot of party lines, um, acknowledging that the loss, the, the vast loss of this heritage was affecting everybody equally. Uh, one of the, the numbers that was banned around at the time was this program called the Historic American Building Survey. It was developed in the mid to late 1930s. By the time the Historic Preservation Act legislation was passed, half of all of the historic structures that were recorded by the HABS program in the 1930s had been torn down. Several thousand buildings that were recognized by the federal government as being some of the most historically significant buildings, and, and they were torn down. Let's stay with the National Register since we're here, because one of the most basic questions is, what are the requirements for inclusion on that registry? 
there are very specific requirements that are that are built into the entire program. Property has to be able to demonstrate significance. There are different categories of significance, and within each of those, there are different kinds of contexts that, that all have to be, either the property has to be shaped to them, the narrative about the history of the property has to be shaped to them, or sometimes we have the opportunities to sort of expand contexts and understandings in certain underrepresented areas of history. Um, a property also has to maintain integrity, so it has these seven different values um, of integrity. And it's just, it's a way to sort of back check that system. But the, the big misunderstanding I think that a lot of people have with preservation and the whole concept of, of dealing with sort of the existing built environment is that we get very caught up in what the stated rules are and how some of those frameworks are made and think about things in terms of sort of a zero sum. It's either in or it's out. And the reality is that there's lots of kind of different levels of recognition and there's different ways in which we can acknowledge historic properties, you know, within our environment. The National register is certainly one, but it, it doesn't have a lot of teeth. It's largely honorific. That's kind of where I was going to lead because I think that is the common misconception, right? A lot of people that aren't in this industry or interested in this, they just go, oh, it's on the National Register. I saw that plaque. And like as if that was a shield to all right. bulldozers. Right. <laughs> it's not. Uh, in <laughs> fact, you could order your own plaque <laughs> for $29.99. The little one is $29.99. You know, they don't they don't give the plaque out, plaques out anymore, um, and they don't even have a program anymore to make them. So anybody who has really? a plaque uh, went out and, and got their own. Really? Um, yeah. So you do you have to pay for your own plaque, even if you get on the registry. That's right. Okay, That's so, right. so it really is honorific, and then it's not giving you that teeth. Now, this might go into what I want people to understand. Local designations and rules are way more important. Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. And it speaks to the structure of the United States government, right? We, all of our federal laws are designed to either sort of take power from the states or to give power to the states in certain ways. And so under the Preservation Act, it's all about giving power to the states to create these programs that then allow the states to go out and with their new state historic preservation office and the funds that started coming in through the historic preservation fund, they're able to go out and pay for surveys of their historic environments, to put together staff, to take care of figuring out ordinances, to put together commissions, to, to determine whether things are eligible or not, or whether changes that are being made to pro properties are appropriate or not. It's really, truly, you know, everything that preservation is about is really, you know, something that has to happen at the local level. I think a lot of people don't know that. For an example, there is a building in the middle of downtown Atlanta, and it's on the register, it's on the National Historic Register, and the only thing that's saving it, let's say it's, it's a federal road or something, that's going to delay it. But no other act is going to stop because of that designation. And to even go further, the whole thing is a process. There's no predetermined outcomes. At the federal level, through the National Register, through Section 106, through the Department of Transportation Act, there's no mandated outcome. It is only a mandated process. And so at the local level, it's the same thing. And so we often frame it in this terms of like, oh, well, that building's protected and therefore it cannot be demolished. But the truth of the matter is that first there's a nomination, right? So first somebody has to say, I, I think that building is historic. And so oftentimes there's a lot of pushback there because the fear is that the person who's saying, I think it's historic, is actually saying, I demand that it's historic. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the truth of the matter is that is that a nomination is just somebody putting forth the idea that something might be historic. Then the staff of the city have to review the nomination. They have to do a 
substantial amount of their own research and put together a, a reporting function. They report up to their commission. The commission typically has a, a board that determines if something is eligible. Then they send it up to the city council. The city council has a vote, right? So it's an extensive process. And then once the building is protected, if somebody wants to make a change, there's a certificate of appropriateness process that's pretty universal um, for, for almost all cities that have the ordinance. And that's also reviewed by a board of, you know, architects and experts and, you know, folks who kind of know what the local regulations and guidelines around historic preservation, what they say. And even if there's a disagreement, there's even an opportunity for the property owner to essentially fight the disagreement. And then even at the end of the day, it's still a lot of decisions go up to the city council level and even the mayor. It's super democratic. And it really is, is just about making sure that everybody is acknowledging all of the important aspects of historic buildings. See, I did not know that, that you're saying it's not an end game, it's a process thing. So nothing truly is officially not able to be torn down. I mean, it can all be negotiated somewhere along this long chain. So does Atlanta have a list of sorts that has a name or how does that work? Yeah, so right now Atlanta has gosh, I think four or five different categories for designated historic properties. Um, on one end of that is this sort of honorary designation that the um, state house has uh, because there's sort of laws of preemption. So the city can't actually put any kind of building controls Got on it. a state, right, on a state institution. But it's a very important building. And then on the other end of that are individually listed, designated historic landmark properties. So when it comes to historic tax credit stuff, is there anything locally with the federal stuff? There's bonuses or perks to it, but does locally have anything like that? There isn't really anything like a tax credit locally. There's some complications with how that would work in the city of Atlanta because a lot of the sort of the local taxes are, you know, splossed kind of fun tax and they, they're sort of really already directed for certain places. But even, you know, sort of more challenging is some of the other sort of preempt laws and stuff. But there are opportunities at the county level to reduce and freeze your taxes when you're going through essentially the state tax credit process. You also can basically just check a box that says you would also like the county tax assessment freeze. Um, and under that program, they freeze your tax assessment at your pre-renovation or pre-rehabilitation value, and then they hold it at that value for eight years. Okay, so let's say... What is the repercussions for I have a historic building that I own or someone tears one down in the middle of the night? Do you get in trouble? You know, is this on a federal level? Is it on a local level? What's what's the punishment? So as we were talking about before, there's lots of different levels and jurisdictions, essentially. If you are a federal client and you destroy a historic building without you know, going through the due process, you could certainly be held accountable to some very high standards. And those standards would be set through essentially a negotiation with the State Historic Preservation Office. So again, there's no wow. there's no solid answer there, but but you they would have to They say, could say yeah. you either have to replace or something or and whether they they try to determine the sort of the assessed value, maybe they try to determine sort of a, a historic value and and use that as a negotiating point and then come to some sort of terms on what that sort of essentially that mitigation would be. You know, the city of Atlanta does not have a great reputation for enforcing and um, and holding up some of the <laughs> some of the the aspects of the historic preservation ordinances. And and I have heard about cities, you know, that are kind of on the other end of the spectrum and and have really really sort of doubled down and and forced owners to to rebuild 
properties and to sort of deconstruct, you know, inappropriate renovations. I, I have to laugh a little bit because you'll see articles all the time and the headline of the article will say something along the lines of like, I don't know, homeowners forced to rebuild, you know, their house. And, and it's just framed in this way where you're just like immediately sort of sympathizing with these poor homeowners that like were caught blindsided by this, this corrupt, you know, local polity that, that, you know, is now forcing them to spend their life savings, you know. And then you read further in the article and you realize that like they knowingly and willfully violated the zoning laws of their jurisdiction. <laughs> Yeah. thinking that there wouldn't be any repercussion. And, and so now they had to, you know, and, and so you see this pop up every couple of months and, and somebody uses it as a, a red herring to say, look how, look how, Because that know. is the idea. I think that that's what, again, lay people are fed from the media, right? It's that historic preservation is restrictive and you're going to get in trouble if you're shed, you know, you, you built a garage and like you said, they're going to make it, make you tear it down. Right. But, and I want to do, I want to get into that because I think that there's misconceptions and not a lot of that is true. Locally though, because we have had many buildings disappear in the middle of the night in Atlanta, let's be honest, there is a whole list. So, but nothing happens is what you're saying. Right. There's a couple of different problems. One, yeah, it, it, it's treated as a code issue. It, the Historic Preservation Office at the city of Atlanta has a shared position, but is a, a code enforcement position, essentially, that, that focuses on that, that issue. But the Department of Planning in general also has code enforcement officers who have law enforcement officer credentials, Authority. authorities. Yeah, okay. I've, see, I've seen them mm-hmm. drive around. <laughs> but as you can imagine, their focus is, is much more on life and safety, you know, and less so on on sort of violations to you know historic preservation ordinances, and and the other problem is is a sort of a burden of proof. You know, we we sort of jokingly call them you know developer fires, but you know we have these historic buildings that sort of mysteriously go on fire, and then in a year somebody's got plans for a new you know something yeah. or other on that spot. Isn't it sad? There's been so many of those that I mean I think we could probably just rattle some off, but yeah. So it's let's say. If I wanted to nominate a place or my own home, is there something that a regular person can do? Like what is, how do you jumpstart this process? It, it's a real problem in the field because there is a, a strong desire by, you know, as you put it, the lay people who, who, who want to participate in, in, in a lot of these processes, but sometimes the cost of entry is too high. Um, at the national register level, individually listing a property on the national register is a, a, a fairly significant undertaking. Cost-wise, time, I mean, just knowledge? I would say that knowledge is the significant part. Time is, is another one. If you were trying to do it as an individual, you'd have to become really familiar with searching through physical archives, deed records of the county. Really it, I mean, I've been doing it as, as a layperson for two years. And first of all, this access isn't even available to everybody. And then like you said, I haven't even stepped into archives or the deed office. It's very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Sanborn maps will make you insane. And the city directories as well. I don't recommend it, but I can, I can 100% see where... I mean, a normal person might just be like, oh, never mind. <laughs> I mean, deed research in, in most county archives feels like this sort of archaic yeah. process of pulling these big books and cross-referencing back to the, you know, the previous one. And But, you know, it is an exercise that, that is fairly necessary when you're talking about these, these nominations. And so typically, you'll hire someone to do that work. Whatever, you know, the, the sort of the going rate is, you could certainly expect... 
uh, a couple hundred hours to be expended on a on a national register nomination. Now, you know, again, the other option is is you know seek to nominate an entire district, and typically, you know, these these local governments, especially ones that are looking to be certified local governments, they will pay for these, and they will um, they will try to do a, a few surveys every every few years. I mean, they can range from ten thousand to to thirty thousand to sixty thousand dollars. Wow! To wow for I an entire historic that. district. Yeah, really. Now the other problem is that at the local level, it should be much more approachable, right? We we should have at the because the the national register is really like like the name implies it, it is intended to be this sort of national program, and so and so it, it has a higher profile in that respect. But at the local level, the process should be simpler, and the way the ordinance is written, it provides for something to be fairly simple. But right now, the city does not have a process where you or I could fill out a form to say, I'd like to have my property nominated. Really? So how does it work now in Atlanta? So the way the ordinance is written, there's there's a couple of different offices in the city that can initiate a nomination. Um, city council can can declare, you know, that they would like something a particular property nominated. The historic preservation director essentially can can put something forward to be nominated. The mayor uh, herself could do it. There's a provision in there where the owner uh, can participate in this process, and obviously there's a lot of participation in the public part of that process as well. But there's not like a form that you could download and there isn't really like an instruction manual or anything like that 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 would help, you know, sort of again, the, the lay person yeah. understand it. I mean, I feel like we've established that this needs to happen because this is a common question people have and a lot of people are living in homes that maybe could be on the right or just even locally designated. Yeah. So one of the recommendations in the Future Places Project, which is the city's most recent um, evaluation of their historic preservation program, is to make that process more accessible. Uh, and so Historic Atlanta has been, we've been chewing on this idea for a while. And um, now that the Future Places Project has been officially announced, we're really looking forward to working with the city to develop some kind of, you know, maybe even a, a form that you could fill in online um, to request a, a determination of eligibility yeah, at the very like, least. Check my house. Yeah, check like, that house on the corner. Do you think this could be? <laughs> okay. There's a lot. I just, I again, from talking to all these people through the podcast and you know, a lot of people know these buildings, they pass them, you know, they might not know the name of them, but they're all very curious about them. And they're all, you know, they know that they're special, but they just don't know those next steps. So I'm excited to look forward to that stuff. Um, when you do have a historic home or even an old home, is there anything a regular homeowner, any kind of financial help? I mean, I guess is grants the only way maybe you would get stuff done with your own personal house if it's not listed anywhere? The historic tax credit program can be used on personal residences. It can? I yeah. thought it was just a big giant project like Pond City Market. It, it can. I mean, there's, you know, you've got to be able to use it in a particular, you know, way and it's got to be sort of beneficial to you because it is a tax credit. The other sort of programs... You know, there's there's a couple of these tax assessment freezes and um, some preferential tax treatment that that can happen depending on which county you're in. But there isn't really anything available to homeowners per se. Okay. Um, we've we've had programs in the past that focused on low income and sort of threatened homeowners. Uh, fixed income, kind of low income situations. And um, there's been some programs as well for business owners. Um, but there's there's a real 
concern there. And, and actually, that's another one of the recommendations that came out of the Future Places project was to look at a couple of the sort of national case study models for incentivizing preservation activities or um, or helping to sort of fund preservation activities for uh, homeowners. Yeah, on a small scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that's also a great idea. I'm excited about this. Um, I have, I think it was Erica asked, so she has an older home, but where can she find older building materials? Well, you know, back in the day, uh, everybody went to the Wrecking Bar, which uh, was yeah, actually had... a architectural salvage really? warehouse. Uh, before, I only know it as a bar. before it so became, so it was actually architectural salvage. Yeah. You can potentially luck out going to Lifecycle um, Building Center, restore. There's another one out close to where the Lifecycle Building Center is, but another one of these sort of architectural salvage places. There's a place off of Bolton Avenue that's like private, you know, yeah. the commercial, like you know, retail business architectural salvage. Um, there's a couple on um, Marietta, I think. Yeah, that, Marietta that, Road uh-huh, or whatever yeah. turns into street. Yeah, but otherwise it's it's a real challenge. So I don't, I want to talk about just two more things because I we need to talk about marginalized communities or low-income communities because this is a very common question as well i've had i think three different people ask this so one of the questions was in what ways does historic preservation affect marginalized communities there was also a pretty simplistic but do the rules apply equally in historically white and black neighborhoods or not i mean i know that's a big one but start where you like it's huge but it's such an important um topic to talk about it's something that the field of historic preservation has been talking about for 10 15 20 years you know not long enough but certainly for for a while now and we're as a profession i think really going in in a lot of wonderfully great directions historic atlanta formed three years ago specifically to address this topic Uh, What the founding board members, myself included, observed was that preservation in the city, and and this relates to the second question as well, was not being applied equally in, you know, communities of color versus, you know, white communities or, you know, wealthy communities. And the kinds of resources were not reflective of the kinds of people that occupied the city. So the, the narrative and the one that I certainly brought with me as someone coming from outside of Atlanta moving to the city was, oh, you know, it's got this sort of Civil War antebellum thing. Same. And then kind of nothing else. Same. I'm like, gone with the wind, Civil Uh, War. Oh, this is going to suck. But that that is, I think, what we preserve. There are, like, there are more historical Civil War markers. There is no shortage of the Civil War happening here. and, And for a really long time, that was the purview of historians. That's it. That's all people in Atlanta wanted to focus on for a very long time was really clearly and accurately describing and and retelling all of the different battles and who was here and who was there and you know really ignoring the whole reason that we were getting into a civil war in the first place and just trying to, you know, approach it from this presumably objective position. But as you know, the big sort of flaw with objective science is anytime you decide to study something, you're making a subjective choice. And for a long time, we were choosing to just look at that story. Um, and of course, the reality is you get here and you realize that this city has one of the richest civil rights pasts of, of all the cities in the Southeast. And yet we're doing the worst job telling it. 
You know, we're being outpaced by Birmingham and Montgomery and Selma. And I mean, all these Alabama cities are investing tons of money right now into capturing that civil rights story. We've got this great reconstruction story. We do. People don't even realize that. I always say, especially with Auburn, yes, Dr. King was born on the street. And yes, he's now, he's now laying here eternally. But there are... 15 other people on this street and their stories start in 1866 that I always say King learned from. But you're totally right. I mean, we have stories no one's talking about. So we're really excited to see, you know, the progress that's happening at Fountain Hall right now. We're we're just, we're staying really close to to trying to understand what is going to happen with Gaines Hall. But, you know, that whole Diamond Hill, yeah. you know, and, and there's a lot of great activity happening at some of the other uh, HBCUs in, in Atlanta. Um, I think that there's a, a greater recognition that that heritage, that that built environment, that that whole side of town represents is, is really significant. You know, two years ago, uh, Historic Atlanta had the, the roundtable discussion where we essentially we said, look, this is a problem. We have not for a very long time paid enough attention to, to these African-American and civil rights resources. And since that time, uh, of the 25 properties that that we identified, uh, I think about 13 of them have now received some kind of funding. Um, There's some great programs from the National Park Service. There's a great targeted funding program from the National Trust. Uh, Central Atlanta Progress has been working with Sweet Auburn Works to do all these pre-design studies. I mean, it's just like all of a sudden there's just this tidal wave, this momentum that's happening, and it's really encouraging. But but there's a lot more work to do, obviously. You know, there's... Yes, definitely. There are just decades of, of, you know, systemic imbalance. And um, within the last year, we almost lost Major Jackson since childhood home. So there's yeah. definitely places yeah. to go. Yeah, and and if you, you know, you kind of extrapolate from that and you start to think about all of the homes of all of these significant people that lived in Atlanta and and there's only one that people know, right? It's the MLK birth yeah. home. But very few people know, you know, that right next to Maynard Jackson home is where, you know, MLK's adult home was. Um, and you wouldn't know. I mean, I think the Park Service has... They've recently, they've recently bought it. It's um, they're one of the reasons that 220 Sunset was was sort of threatened. Potentially was because of the sort of interpretive environment that was that was looking to be done out there. Um, I think that that a lot of that's been resolved, but eh, preservation is slow. We're one. We're talking about property, and as Americans, we do get a little bit cagey about being too public with what we plan to do with our properties, yeah. right? And so we have discussions and planning and stuff like that, but it's not always open and out in the public until the project actually is ready to go, and then there's usually some kind of announcement. The other part of the- this question I think people have is the idea that historic preservation is negative for a low-income community or a African-American neighborhood. And you're saying that that is not true. Yeah, I appreciate the question. It's probably coming from my old thesis advisor. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I would imagine. Um, so I did actually, I, I, I wrote my thesis dissertation on that question. The, the contention for a very long time has been that preservation and gentrification kind of go hand in hand and that preservation is this sort of like rich white person yes, sport yes. and it's it does not benefit low-income communities or communities of color. Um, and so we, I wanted to look at it from a couple different perspectives because the way that I like to approach preservation and the way that, that I, I think again, the, the field sort of contemplates is, is that preservation is, is a philosophy, 
but you still need to be driven by certain goals. And it's one of the sort of tools that can be used to bring um, environmental, economic, and social justice. Um, and so we went about trying to prove that by saying, let's look at these three different sort of factors, evaluate what, you know, what kind of metrics we want to think about and move from that point forward. And so from the sociocultural perspective, you have sort of two aspects. One, preservation inherently is about physical activities that maintain the cultural ties that we have with our community. We identify our place by looking around and saying, these are landmarks that I recognize, that I recognize from my childhood, that my mother recognizes, that her mother before her recognized. Right? That's one of the ways that we sort of establish ourselves in a cultural environment. And the other side of it is sort of the social connection. So when you preserve the physical environment, more likely you are able to preserve the people that live in that social environment. It's That's when you it's when you tear down, you know, a neighborhood and you have to force everybody to move out to these different places that those social connections are lost, right? But preservation activities inherently say, look, you know, we're going to do like one building and then maybe that tenant's got to move out for a period of time, but like it's less disruptive, right? You still have to renovate or rehabilitate these buildings. You still have to do capital work, but you can do it in a way that doesn't displace people. The other is economic justice. Donovan Ripkema is, he's the person if you wanted to find some study about the economic impacts of, of preservation. And so I'll do a hatchet job of sort of summarizing everything that he's done in his entire lifetime and career and say that in pretty much any way that you slice it, historic districts, historic properties are just more stable. And so when housing markets are going up, historic districts are usually pretty level. When housing markets are going down, historic districts are usually pretty level. When there's big development pressures happening on one thing, historic district districts are usually able to buffer from that, right? And when big sort of disvestment happens, historic districts typically protect a bit against that, especially sort of well-designed ones with Main Street programs and all this other stuff. Um, when we talk about sort of tax and set like like tax credits a lot of people get upset with the tax credits because it's like ah oh, it's another entitlement program in the state of Georgia and nationally, the federal tax credit program for historic rehabilitation uh, is one of the most profitable programs uh, of any tax credit program <laughs> across the board. The only one that's more beneficial to local tax roles is the film tax credit. Really? Yeah. So well, it's filming. It's filming and historic preservation. And, wow. and one of the reasons is because both of those tax credits are for the kind of work that employs a lot of people, brings in a lot of labor, brings in a lot of specialty skills, a lot of things that you cannot export. You can't bring it in from overseas. There's no like buying. It's skilled labor a lot it's, of times. It's, it's skilled yeah, labor and it's and it's specialty kind of products. Um, and so and so that's one of the ways that that preservation and, and economic justice are sort of related. Is that you have on both sides of that coin, you have a way to sort of protect people from from price inflation and deflation. You have a way to make sure that tax money is being spent in a really kind of catalytic way. Um, and you know, again, I could go on. And then no, the last no, one, this is good. and this is my favorite, <laughs> is environmental justice. Because if you don't tear a building down, you're not sending yes. it to the landfill. Yes, I say this. That is my go-to because I know so little. But I always tell people, you're tearing down something that exists to then put it in the garbage. So I want to end with a with a great question, which is, how can the listener join the cause for historic preservation? Yeah, no, it's such a good question. So the first thing I'll say is. 
follow Historic Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, like us on Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter or whatever your, your preference. Um, we have a newsletter. You can sign up for that. It's, um, it's really informative. But in a larger context, you know, as we said at the very beginning, preservation is local. If a person wants to get involved with preservation, the, the first thing that they should do is you know, walk around your neighborhood and, and think about the places that are important to you and that are significant to you. And, and even if they're not significant by some definition or historic, as we said, by some definition, but, but that they have meaning for you and, and try to research it. Um, and I think, you know, Archive Atlanta is such a great example of, of sort of that way of how someone can get involved. Obviously, you've become completely obsessed and bitten by yeah, the, I, you know, probably have a problem. the bug here. But, but for most people, hopefully they don't have that kind of susceptibility and they can just focus their research on one property and be happy with that perhaps. But really, I mean, joking aside, it is not necessarily a place where, where folks are just going to be able to fall into because there's all sorts of different specialties that are required for all different aspects of the work. So my professional expertise is material science and conservation, right? I'm a, I work with my hands. I like to, I have a laboratory, you know, I'm focused on that material aspect of it. There's a lot of other folks who, you know, for them, it's the public history. They want to tell the story of the people who lived in the house. And, and so the other part of it, I guess, is, is kind of know why you want to get involved with historic buildings. Do you want to save historic buildings? Do you want to tell their story? Do you want to live in a historic building? You know, what? That's a good point because that'll, that'll do direct you mm -hmm. to maybe a more specific place you can volunteer. This sounds cliche maybe, but donating money is always a great option because like you said, it's very specialized. So sometimes you have a team of people and they're always nonprofits. I mean, all of this is done by like a ragtag group of individuals. Like, yeah. like we can be, you know, if you don't know how to help and maybe you don't have these skills, you can donate. I also feel like it's just getting behind the time we need rallying points, you know? So Atlanta especially, you identify a building and sometimes it's just public sentiment is going to save it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have to obligatorily say, if you go to saveatl.org, it'll take you right to our donation page. Um, we are always accepting donations. Um, and you know, right now we've got a couple of really great programs that have specific funding targets and you can donate and know that your money is going towards a really specific action right now. Um, and we're always trying to look for opportunities to engage our, our stakeholders in our community. And we look forward to opportunities to do this and to, to take questions from, from folks and, and to sort of just keep an open discussion. So there you have it, guys, Historic Preservation 101. If you have more questions or questions about something we talked about, definitely reach out to me. All my contact information is in the show notes. I want to thank everyone for listening. If you want to keep up with Atlanta's historic preservation efforts, you can follow Historic Atlanta, um, also links in the show notes. And better yet, you can sign up for their monthly newsletter. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.